right, it's Acts chapter 18. <clears throat> After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius, Justus, a worshipper of Jesus. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. Many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptised. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatever. Morning, everyone. Good to see you again, twice in three weeks. What a treat for me. Mick and I uh, spoke this morning and coordinated our outfits, which was good. We like to do that time to time. Uh, Lionel Windsor is a fabulous preacher and teacher of God's Word. He's also really nice. He's really warm and engaging when he speaks and preaches. And uh, I presume he'll certainly be there for morning tea. I presume he'll hang around for lunch. I don't know if he's there full time, perhaps, possibly not. Well, cool. I haven't met his wife, but there you go. She's nice too. So you get to do meals and things with the speaker, which is nice. So, yeah, Lionel's the type of guy you'd love to have lunch with. Let me pray as we uh, jump back into Acts, back into the book of Acts. <clears throat> Loving Father, Almighty God, we thank you so much for the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that the gospel cannot be stopped because it is empowered by your Holy Spirit. And we thank you as we come now uh, back to the book of Acts after a long break um, that we see your gospel at work in the city of Corinth. And Lord, we pray that you'll um, reveal to us again how good your word is and you'll also um, bless us with great assurance that your word can be trusted and great courage and resolve uh, to share your word even in the face of opposition. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we pick up a preaching series that we left in, at Easter in 2017 was the last time 
uh, that we preached. Acts 17 was preached by Jono at Easter in 2017. Who was actually a member of this church at Easter? Put your hand up if you're a member of the church at Easter in 2017. Look at all your new people here. Isn't that fantastic in the last six years? So it's been a long time since we've looked um, at Acts. So I want to orientate us a little bit uh, with the book of Acts as we jump back in uh, for a while. Um, If you're on Facebook, you might have seen the map uh, that I posted up on the church members page through the week. You might have had a chance to have a look. You may not. Um, But here it is. And we're following Paul's second missionary journey, which takes him from Antioch, which is there in the east. So it's that purple line. It's a bit hard to see, but... It's the purple line, he starts in the east in Antioch and he goes up through Cilicia and Galatia and Asia and across in the northwest there into Macedonia, across the water, and then he comes down the coast of Macedonia and he's in the circle there in the region of Achaia. He's just been in Athens and now he's in Corinth. So it's kind of the, it's kind of the climax to the missionary journey. We're sort of jumping in at the end of the story in a sense, um, but he's just arrived uh, in Corinth and that is... Uh, chapter 18 of Acts, and he spends a, he probably spends almost two years um, in Corinth, and um, and that's the longest period that he spends in any of the places that he visited, at least in his second missionary journey. And he's made his way really into the lion's den as he's come uh, into the city of Corinth. Corinth was a bustling city; um, it was well positioned in the world for trade. Uh, a lot was happening in Corinth. They were proud of their city. They were proud of their wealth. The Jews were proud of their religion. The Romans were proud of their power. There's a lot of pride going around uh, in Corinth. Um, There's also a lot of sexual immorality going around in Corinth. Towering above the great city of Corinth was the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, or Venus, um, and... A thousand temple prostitutes would roam the streets at night through Corinth uh, looking for immoral people to seduce in order to worship their and please their false god Aphrodite. This this was Corinth uh, in the first century. This was what it was like. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. He comes into the city with great fear and trembling. Not only is there gross sin happening in this city, great pride in their sin, but there is a strong Jewish religious system happening in Corinth and they don't like the gospel. It's the Jews that Paul is primarily concerned about and afraid of. How could the gospel possibly penetrate such a thoroughly pagan city so vehemently opposed to God? How can it possibly penetrate such an ingrained, instituted religion that had the backing of the Roman Empire? So entrenched in living for self, self self-rule, self-satisfaction, even self-salvation were the people in Corinth. I wonder if you would feel like Paul. Afraid, trembling. I wonder if sometimes in your workplaces, confronted with conversations about Christianity and hot topics, if you feel fear and trembling. As our city and our culture grow increasingly hostile to the gospel, to all that we stand for as Christians, 
How can we stand against it? How can we stand against our culture, which is increasingly hostile, increasingly living for self, self-rule, self-salvation, self-pleasure? How do we stand against it? In our passage today, we see what happens in two environments that aren't ruled by the gospel and one that is. And we're going, to consider, we're going to consider our present day and we're going to consider our present scenario where the gospel has not been upheld and what the results were. So firstly, please keep your Bibles open at Acts chapter 18. The verses will be on the screen for Acts. We're going to look at a bit of Romans at the end and that won't be on the screen, so it'd be good to have your Bibles handy throughout. Firstly, we see a scenario where the true gospel has not been upheld and we see the ensuing consequences. Look at verse 2. So we know he's in Corinth, and there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, which is down in the southwest, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Priscilla and Aquila were Jewish Christians. They'd been kicked out of Rome by Emperor Claudius along with all the other Christians in Rome. Why? Well, if you read the Gospels, you'll see that Christians came into sharp disagreement with the Jews. Uh, Their leader of the Christians came into sharp disagreement and they executed him on a cross, you may recall, and read in the Gospels. And so Claudius decides to drive the Christians out. They're too much trouble in his city, all this opposition with the Jews, so he drives them out. And that only serves to spread the gospel across the greater region. It was an act of God that they were driven out. Clearly, there's gospel partnership between Paul and Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, It's likely that they were already Christians when he met them already followers of Jesus, and he seemed, it seems that he stayed with them in their home or perhaps nearby, quite possibly in their home. They're both tent makers, the three of them seem to be tent makers, um, and so they worked together. They made dwellings for people, perhaps they were leather workers, it doesn't really matter. The point is, Paul worked full-time uh, to provide for himself, and then on the, on the weekends, he went to the synagogue uh, to preach to the Jews Firstly, now Paul's famously known as the Apostle to the Gentiles, isn't he? Paul's the Apostle to the Gentiles. But the priority for Paul, as you follow his whole missionary journey through Acts, you can read back through it, his priority is to the Jews, not to the Gentiles, because that's God's priority, the Jews. As he wrote to the church in Rome... I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, which I assume is most, if not all of us. Ben's not here. The great tragedy is that many of the Jews rejected the gospel. They rejected their own Messiah. That's the great tragedy of the Bible, is that God sent his son, his Messiah, to his people, the Israelites, the Jews, and many rejected him, spat in his face, shouted and ordered and demanded that he be crucified. Look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, 
Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. So once Silas and Timothy arrive, they come down to help out with the ministry. And Paul then starts preaching full time. He stops tent making, he starts preaching full time. Why? Well, we're not sure exactly. We do know um, from 2 Corinthians 8 that the Macedonians were particularly generous. They gave out of um, their, the little that they have, it says, in 2 Corinthians 8. So perhaps Silas and Timothy came with some extra funds to fund Paul to pay his way so that he could be freed up uh, to preach full-time, just as you guys free up, Jono and Ben and myself, uh, to preach full-time. It seems Paul came into some, came into some funds so he could <clears throat> now preach full-time. His preaching was no longer throttled, held back by his need to work to provide for himself. He could engage in it full-time, which was great. This is great news, particularly for the Jews who he was serving and ministering to. He was freed up to give his all to preaching to the Jews and the Greeks, if they were there. <clears throat> but sadly, the Jews wanted no part of the good news of Jesus. Not only did they reject Paul's teaching, but they became abusive, we're told, towards Paul. And he's forced to give up on them. It's common throughout the Bible, God Sorry, Jesus said to his disciples, go into a town, share the gospel with them. If they don't want to know about it, shake off the dust from your feet and leave. So oppositional, so abusive are the Jews to the gospel that Paul's forced to give up and decides now to preach to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews that are there in Corinth, those not descended from Israel. Hence the Jewish nation, God's chosen nation, that he protected and cared for throughout the ages, is divided by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some believe and some reject. They're divided. There's disunity amongst the Jews. On one side those who trust, and on the other side, those who don't. But as we read on, we discover something extraordinary. Jews and Gentiles united in the gospel. And not just any old Jews, but the upper echelons of Jewish society. Look at verse 7. Paul left the synagogue, and he went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God, Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptised. And one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and said, Don't be afraid. I know you have fear and trembling. I'm the Lord. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I'm with you. And no one is going to attack you. And harm you. Thank you. That's very kind. (coughs) 
No one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Clearly not everyone present in the synagogue rejected Paul's teaching. The synagogue ruler became a Christian. But many did, and their rejection also came with threats to Paul's safety. And it was this dangerous antagonism for the Jews that was his primary cause of fear. But God in his kindness appears to Paul a second time, as he had done at his conversion. And the Lord assured Paul that he would not only protect him, but he had placed people in this city to help him. And not just any old people, but the ex-synagogue leader was someone that God had saved and brought to salvation and given to Paul to help. Crispus was persuaded of Paul's teaching. He'd entrusted his life to Jesus and he'd opened up his home as a church. A house church starts in an ex-synagogue leader's house. This is the power of the gospel at work. This is what the gospel can achieve when it is faithfully preached amongst the world. And when it says there many of the Corinthians, from verse 8, no doubt many of them are Gentiles. So we have an ex-synagogue leader, a Jew, a faithful Jew, once upon a time to his religion, now converted and now opens up his home to not only fellow Christian Jews, but to Gentiles as well, coming into his home, sitting together in worship of the Lord Jesus, just as you sit here together today. It is, it's impossible to really feel the depth of this unthinkable unity that Jews and Gentiles, sworn enemies, would fellowship together in his ex-synagogue leader's home. We think Palestinians and Israelis, sadly, we think Russians and Ukrainians at the moment, at people at war, so were these Jews and Gentiles now fellowshipping together as brothers and sisters in Christ, enjoying a bond of fellowship that runs deeper than any peace treaty signed by man. Co-heirs with Christ now find themselves sitting under the teaching of Paul right next door to where the ongoing heresy continues in the synagogue. Can you imagine how filthy the Jewish leaders must have been at their leader who'd abandoned them and worse still set up a church and worse still right next door to the synagogue. The indignation, the insult they must have felt. But this is the power of the gospel, friends, to unite people together, to bring people together. You would think there's no person in Corinth less likely to put their trust in Jesus than the leader of the synagogue. But he did because the gospel was preached faithfully and God is faithful. The gospel breaks down religious barriers. The gospel breaks down societal barriers. The gospel brings people together, unlikely people together, in fellowship and joy. This is the power of the gospel. Where there was animosity and hatred, the gospel replaces these things with compassion and kindness and love. 
And this good news is in your possession and has the power in your possession to break down any barrier that human society can raise up because of the power of the Holy Spirit in you as you share the gospel. No river is too deep, no mountain is too high for the gospel to overcome it. That was a little tribute to our beloved Tina Turner, God rest her soul. Third point, this is where we start to see some fireworks. We have secular disunity and religious, really, again, disunity on full display. And then we'll think about a sad modern state of affairs that does actually affect us all. Verse 12. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. So Paul is taken, no doubt forcibly, to some sort of trial before the local authorities. He's taken before Gallio, the Roman proconsul, let's just say, he was in charge of the region of Achaia. He, he was a Roman ruler of the region. And the accusation is that Paul's teaching contrary to Roman law. How is he doing that? What they mean to say is that their Jewish false teaching has been approved by Roman law. It's an approved religion underneath the government. And Paul's teaching is in opposition to it Therefore, in opposition to Roman law. That's the charge. How will Gallio respond? I mean, this is an enemy of the state we've got here. Gallio, what are you going to do about it? Verse 14. Just as Paul was about to defend himself, Gallio said, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime... It would be reasonable for me to listen to you, but since it involves questions about words and names of your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of these things. And he drove them out forcibly, I presume, Roman soldiers and the like. In a word, Gallio could not care less about this supposed approved religion of the state. Don't want to know about it. Now, some might say this is good and right. He did the right thing by letting them settle this matter for themselves. The Bible says if Christians have a dispute, settle the matter out of the courts. Don't bring it before the court. Gallio did the right thing. Yeah, maybe. I would say the government doesn't care about these Jews or Christians at the end of the day. The Romans had offered the Jews some level of protection and some level of affirmation of their religion, so long as it didn't interfere with what was going on for the government of the time. But when push comes to shove and they ask for the government to intervene, the government doesn't really care about them, nor their religion. So long as it's not bothering them too much, there's no sort of civil dispute or riot, just don't want to know about it. We're not going to help you. Sort it out for yourselves. In Rome, the Jews and Christians were bothering Claudius too much, so he drove them out of town. Here in Corinth, it seems they're not bothering Gallio too much, so 
He just drives me out of the room and says, leave me alone. I don't want to know about it. Clearly he's abrogating what probably should be his responsibility, seeing as they have approved this Jewish religion, but simply put, the government doesn't care. Friends, we kind of ought to expect this from our secular governments. We ought to expect then no real vested interest in our trust in Jesus and our Christianity. They really don't care about our faith in Jesus, our Christianity. We ought to expect a level of care while it's mutually convenient. We are allowed to use their property to meet in on a Sunday, so long as we pay a bit of rent and we're not causing too much trouble in society. It's mutually convenient. But just as much, we ought to expect them not to care for us too much if we cause too much trouble for them as we saw in the next couple of verses. As we saw, sorry, in Rome, as as they were driven out of town. Verse 17, the crowd then turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, beat him in front of the proconsul. Surely that's illegal. But Gallio showed no concern, whatever. Who's the crowd? Well, presumably it's not Paul and his friends beating the synagogue leader. We can only conclude it's the Jews who turn on their own leader for not getting the justice, not, I don't know, advocating, I don't know, he didn't get get what they wanted. They wanted justice. They wanted Paul brought to justice. It didn't happen. They can't turn on the Romans, so they turn on their own leader and beat him. And again, the government doesn't care. Gallio shows no concern. One of his citizens is unjustly getting a beating riding in front of him and he turns and walks away. The unity that the Jews thought existed between themselves and the state doesn't actually exist because it's not built on the gospel. Only the gospel brings true unity between people. Any other supposed unity between people is mutually convenient and temporary. The unity between the Jews and the Romans seemed to be there, but not when put to the test. There's two implications I want us to think about today. We're going to spend a few minutes thinking about these things. Firstly is false gospel community will be found out and eventually disintegrate. False gospel community will be found out and eventually disintegrate. Where there seems to be unity in community, but the gospel is not upheld in all its truth, eventually that unity will disintegrate. And one example, sadly, is the Anglican communion across the world. The Sydney Anglican Diocese recently, as many of you are aware, has split from the Anglican Church of England over the issue of same-sex unions. And many evangelical churches in England have done the same thing. They've split from the church, the Anglican Church of England over the issue 
of same-sex unions. They've stopped being affiliated with them. They've stopped giving money to them. Some of the biggest evangelical churches in England have split ties. Fellowship with the Church of England, which has stood for 400 years. You may be aware of the Diocese of the Southern Cross that was formed last year in Queensland for Bible-believing Anglicans to be a part of. It's a safe haven for evangelicals who believe in the Bible to be a part of the Diocese of the Southern Cross in Queensland because of the false teaching that's happening in many of the Anglican churches in Queensland, New South Wales, across the country. Many Anglican churches, sadly, advocating for same-sex unions. Because of an unwillingness to hold to the truths of the Bible and a willingness to bow to societal pressure on the issue of same-sex unions, division is created. Where there was unity, there is now division. The gospel's not being upheld. The Bible's not being taught faithfully. And disunity is a result. However, because of the gospel, there is strong unity between evangelical Anglicans across the world in the GAFCON movement. GAFCON stands for Global Anglican Future Conference. So there's great unity between our diocese, between many churches in England, between many, many churches in Africa in particular, Bible-believing Anglicans who believe the gospel, who uphold to the true teaching of the word, not bowing to societal pressure on these matters, have great unity in the GAFCON movement around the world, which is a real blessing, particularly for the smaller churches around the world and for faithful Christians who find themselves on the outer. We are in the majority, I suppose, in a sense, in the Sydney Anglican Diocese. We're really blessed to be in the Sydney Anglican Diocese, which teaches the Bible faithfully. Our bishops teach the Bible faithfully. Our archbishop teaches the Bible faithfully. It's very unusual across the world to be in such a faithful diocese of Bible-believing teachers, but we find ourselves blessed in this way. But that's not the case for many, and the GAFCON movement is a real blessing to to those who find themselves isolated in their own diocese across our country and across the world. Where the Bible is not taught faithfully, eventually disunity will be found. Unity disintegrates. But secondly, genuine gospel unity will survive and indeed thrive. When the Bible is taught faithfully, unity survives and unity thrives. But a word of caution, we must keep teaching the Bible faithfully. We must know the Bible for ourselves, be testing what we hear all the time. We must be students of the word, disciples of the Lord Jesus, reading the Bible for ourselves, knowing the Bible for ourselves, teaching one another, making that effort for the sake of one another, for the sake of our unity. If the teachings of the Bible are adhered to, if we stick to them faithfully and unwaveringly, we will continue to enjoy unity with one another 
and other brothers and sisters across the world. And it doesn't matter what their race is, their socioeconomic background is, or their religious background is, it doesn't matter. We've seen today in the, the gospel brings a synagogue leader together with Paul as brothers in Christ. It doesn't matter what background we come from, the gospel brings us together in fellowship that cannot be found in the same way, in an earthly sense. It's fellowship in Christ. It's eternal. We saw today that Paul didn't allow his fear to compromise the truth and the preaching of the truth in its fullness. And God was faithful to him, wasn't he? God helped him in his fear and his trembling. God appeared to him, he comforted him, he encouraged him. He urged him to keep on preaching the truth, which is why he stuck around for so long in Corinth and saw such a fruitful ministry. If it's been a while since you've read 1 and 2 Corinthians, read them again. So many people won for Christ because of Paul's faithfulness to the preaching of the truth in all its fullness. He doesn't back down from a hard conversation because he knows the power of the gospel and he knows what's at stake. People's lives are at stake. People's salvations are at stake. Friends, I truly believe our resolve is going to be tested more and more in our city in these coming years and decades. The government commanded us to close our doors three years ago and we did. Was it the faithful thing to do? I think it was at the time. Our bishops were in constant and healthy conversation with the government throughout the pandemic. The government did not do a gallio and just show contempt, but we don't know what's down the road. Our government, state and federal, are all pro-abortion, pro-same-sex marriage, pro-euthanasia. And we are not. Except for situations where the life of the mother's in danger during childbirth, we're not pro-abortion. If you want to talk to me more about any of those things that I just said just then, please do. Please email me or catch up with me at morning tea. I'd love to have a chat with you more and more. The euthanasia one is new, but there's research showing that the conversation has moved from the elderly who are, who are terminal to teenagers who are depressed and even the homeless are now in a conversation about euthanasia. The government is not on our side in many of the things we believe. But for now, we're not causing them too much trouble. For now... We are the irrelevant Christians they're happy to largely ignore. At some point, we will become the pesky Christians that they might seek to drive out of town, as Claudius did in Rome. They might seek to drive out of their schools. Ask Jono and Ben if they believe that one day they might be arrested for refusing same-sex unions, and they'll tell you 
Yes, maybe. Probably not in the next two generations, but maybe. It was something that Philip Jensen said to us at a college retreat 15 years ago. Philip Jensen, now in his 70s, said, I'll never be arrested in Australia for preaching the gospel, but you might. And that's okay. You just start a church in jail. That's what he said. We're sitting by the fire down at Loftus. That was the conversation. And he's right. What would you do if they arrested Jono and drove us out of this school hall? It seems ridiculous, I know, but it's not. What would you do? Let's have something that's a bit more manageable to hang on to for now. What will you say when they ask you at work where you stand on gay marriage? Will you faithfully and lovingly lovingly explain gay marriage isn't actually a thing because marriage is between a man and a woman? There's no such thing as gay marriage. The Bible says marriage is between one man and one woman for life. And that's what I believe. Will you faithfully and lovingly explain that? Do you feel the courage to explain that? Do you feel fear and trembling? You might. I'd be surprised if you don't. But God is with you, as he was with Paul. And we need to be faithful to the truth. Because that's what unites people really forever. That's what saves people from death to life, is preaching the truth, as scary as it can be. But we have the Holy Spirit and we have one another. We have the truth, actually. (laughs) Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 8, 28. If you haven't got a Bible but you've got a phone, look it up in your Bible app. Or if you haven't got a Bible app, go to BibleGateway.com in your browser. These are really, really, really important words for us to remember as our culture increasingly opposes us. It will increasingly oppose us. Why do you think we're so keen to secure land? We're not expecting to be here in 20 years. Romans 8.28, you ready? We know, brothers and sisters, that in all things, all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, his son, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. You've been chosen by God. He is with you. Verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then can condemn? No one. 
Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers including our government, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. My goal is not to freak you out this morning, and I hope I haven't. But gospel faithfulness is really serious. Serious for good reasons. It brings great unity to people. And serious because if we don't uphold to the truths of the gospel, we will find disunity. We will find our church fractured. We need to know our Bibles. Remember that God will always, always bless our faithfulness. He will always, always be with us. If we stand for the truth, of course he will. It is his truth that we're standing for. And we will always, always stand united together as brothers and sisters in Christ so long as we remain faithful to God's good and true gospel. If we're forced to enter the lion's den or the lion's den forms around us at morning tea, at work, remember that God is with you. And so is your church. Let me pray. Loving Father, we thank you for your good, true, mighty gospel that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. God, make us diligent in knowing your Bible, in reading it, in embedding these gospel truths in our lives and our hearts so that we might be faithful on the day of trial. In Jesus' name, amen.